it wasn't as crazy as it might seem. After all, if a man could conquer the confines of space and distance, why couldn't he also overcome the limits of time? That's what he believed, at least. So the story goes. The man was Guillermo Marconi, and we'll eventually get to his struggle against time. But let's start with how he overcame distance. Marconi connected continents and freed us from the shackles of telegraph wires. He did this with the power of radio. Now let's get one thing straight. Marconi is remembered as the father of radio, but he didn't actually invent radio. Others, like David Edward Hughes, did that. What Marconi did was see radio's potential and market it. Whereas the genius of great scientists such as Faraday, Hertz, and Tesla was in understanding and manipulating the relationship between the forces of the universe, such as electricity and magnetism, Marconi's genius was in understanding and manipulating public relations. Although he did refine the process of sending and receiving radio waves, his greatest contribution to radio was popularizing it. He was a great PR man. July 20th, 1898, saw perhaps the greatest example of this genius. Marconi made a deal with the Dublin Daily Express to report live on the results of the Kingstown Yacht Races. It was the first ever news event to be reported wirelessly. The transmission method ended up being a much greater story than the result of the races. This was the first time that information could travel at speeds that we take for granted now. Such publicity stunts launched Marconi into the limelight, and soon his technology was being used to send messages back and forth between postmen, princes, and presidents. Marconi's perceived role as the Zeus of radio, wielding the awesome power of heavenly electricity, became entrenched so quickly and so completely that when the British government made inquiries into the Titanic disaster, the British postal master is quoted as saying, those that have been saved have been saved through one man, Mr. Marconi. However, the full story of radio's role and what happened to the Titanic is complicated. You see, while it's true that Marconi's technology played a part in saving the 700 people that survived the tragedy, it may also be true that it contributed to the fate of the 1,500 people that did not. The main purpose of the Marconi Company radio operators aboard the Titanic was not to ensure safe sailing. Instead, their primary purpose was to receive info from the mainland for their wealthy passengers, such as personal messages and reports of fluctuations in the stock market. The Titanic was receiving such messages when its radio received a warning from a nearby ship, the SS Californian, which tried to tell the Titanic about the approaching danger of icebergs. The warning interrupted the steady stream of stock market messages, so the Titanic radio operator told the SS Californian, Shut up. Shut up. I'm busy. The Titanic 
did not have the ability to receive both the warning and the stock market messages at the same time because its radio technology was inadequate. This might seem a little strange, that the majestic Titanic, the greatest example of modernity in its day, would have subpar radio technology. Always the PR and businessman, Marconi was able to use his popularity to build a radio monopoly. Unfortunately, he was not as interested in actually improving the technology of this monopoly. And this is why that pesky warning about the icebergs interrupted the stock market messages. So, the Titanic decided to keep listening to the stock market info, telling the other ship to shut up. The radio operator of the SS Californian complied. He took off his headphones and went to bed. Ten minutes later, the Titanic hit the iceberg and began radioing out distress signals. Signals that the SS Californian radio operator could no longer hear. Alas, Marconi was an awesome PR man. His popularity survived the Titanic, and everyone forgot the cautionary tale of his radio. A cautionary tale of greed and dated technology being protected by monopolies. Because even Marconi's flawed techniques had the potential to impress upon people the revolutionary power of radio. After all, Marconi was able to span the Atlantic Ocean with an invisible bridge of electricity, casting messages into the air on one continent and plucking them out of the sky on another. And that revolutionary power was why it wasn't as crazy as it might seem. When towards the end of his life, Marconi turned his attention to the problem of time, believing that his radio could overcome it. You see, Marconi believed that sound waves never truly die. Sure, they grow fainter and fainter, and that's why the moment after you hear a bell, for example, the sound disappears. But he believed that the sound of that bell is still out there somewhere, that it will always be out there, simply reverberating too faintly for the human ear to pick it up. And if a radio could be powerful enough to tune into distant places, why couldn't you create a radio that could also tune into distant times to pick up the faint traces of that bell? Marconi wanted to play back the past. Now, sound waves don't actually work the way Marconi thought they did. But maybe, just maybe, it wasn't as crazy as it might seem. Because we can play back the past. For example, let's go back 46 years from today. Let's tune our radio to July 20th, 1969. It's a day that I'm sure you know well. I'm going to step off the limb now. Perhaps one of the most important crowning moments of human history. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Of course you've heard the sounds of man's first walk on the moon. You've probably heard them so often that they're a little bit boring to you. And that's kind of the point. We've grown so comfortable with being able to hear the sounds of the past 
that we take the ability for granted with just a few keywords and a few clicks. We can hear the defining moments of our parents and our grandparents' generation. In this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. I have a dream. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. The Beatles. Dreams. 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 Is this not exactly what Marconi dreamt of? A machine so powerful that it could pick up the past and play it back? Of course, there are limitations to this. Marconi wanted to be able to use his radio to hear the voice of Jesus Christ, to hear the Lord's Prayer from the Lord himself. We can't do that. We can't go that far back. No matter what keywords you type into Google. But just how far back can we go? This new era of enlightenment, where the sounds of the past never have to die. When did it begin? The history of humanity is actually a very quiet one, at least for us as we look back through it. We have the words of Shakespeare, but we'll never hear his voice. We can't know what he sounded like, or what the London streets he knew sounded like. Not really. How could we? Sound is one of the most ethereal, the most fragile and fleeting things that we can sense. There are redwood trees that you can touch that were growing when Jesus said that prayer. You can feel the same heat of the sun that mankind has felt for over 10,000 years now. You can see ancient cave paintings, visual moments frozen in time forever. But sound is different. Every word we say and note we sing is there for a moment, and then gone. Man has been trying to capture those moments for as long as we've felt the heat of the sun, trying and failing. As we tune our time-traveling radio through the ages, we are met with nothing, a void of utter nothingness, utter silence. That is, until July 20th, 1857. Give or take a few days, no one knows the exact date. For the first time in history, a human voice emerges out of the darkness. The first voice ever recorded. It's not much of a recording, but it's a start. The start. You see, Edmund Leon Scott de Martinville was still perfecting his technique. Scott was a French inventor that wanted to study the human voice. By 1860, he was able to produce this. A recording that can actually be deciphered. Au clair de la lune. It's a French folk song. And as poor as the recording is, it's a miracle that we can hear it at all. Because even though this is the oldest known intelligible recording of the human voice, it wasn't actually heard until 2008. You see, instead of capturing his voice in the grooves of wax or vinyl, Scott's recording was merely wavy lines transfixed on paper by a machine he invented called the phonautograph. 
He dreamt of being able to preserve for the future generation the diction of those grand artists who die without leaving behind them the faintest trace of their genius. Scott said of his invention, I saw the book of nature open before the eyes of all men. But his wavy lines sat trapped on the paper for over 150 years. Until scientists at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory were able to scan them into a computer and bring them to life. One of the scientists said, it was like a ghost was trying to speak to me through the static. This is the outer limit of our time traveling radio. It's not as far back as Marconi wanted to go, but it's pretty amazing all the same. Scott opened a Pandora's box of sound that summer day in Paris, the reverberations of which we have been hearing ever since. July 20th, 1877, Thomas Edison had in his possession the first recording that could be played back without the assistance of 21st century scientists. He was speaking into a telephone late one night in his lab when he felt the reverberations of his voice in the machine's diaphragm. It occurred to him that he could capture those reverberations. So he took a sheet of wax paper and did just that. Edison documented the event in his lab notebook, writing down the technical aspects of the experiment and ending with the words, There is no doubt that I will be able to store up and reproduce automatically at any future time the human voice perfectly. However, Edison had a problem he had made it so easy to capture and reproduce sound that anyone could do it. And on July 20th of the following year, Scientific American published an article explaining exactly how anyone could use Edison's technique to do just that. This marks what could have potentially been a momentous moment in history. For the first time, anyone with $1.50 of materials could do what had never been possible before, easily record sound for future generations. But it turned out that Edison was less interested in recording sound for future generations and more interested in the patents that he had on his machine. Patents that would have been infringed if anyone had followed the instructions in the Scientific American so Edison's phonograph company circulated a warning, threatening to prosecute anyone who made, sold, or used unofficial versions of Edison's recording machine. Think of the 19th century voices we could have heard if this inexpensive open source recorder had been allowed to flourish. Instead, recording became a big business July 20th, 1940, Billboard published its first Top Records chart. The first number one hit was I'll Never Smile Again by Tommy Dorsey. 
That same day, Robert Moore celebrated his 16th birthday. As he blew out the candles, he had no idea that he would one day invent something that would help topple the artificial barriers created by record companies such as Edison's to limit the proliferation of sound. You see, Moore would grow up to be a physicist, and in 1970, he led the team that invented optical fiber. Moore's invention became the backbone of the internet, allowing sound to spread like never before. It's what you're using to hear my voice right now. Whereas Marconi's technology could only transmit half of one conversation at a time, optical fiber could transmit up to 50 billion conversations at once. This means that, in theory at least, a single cable could transmit all of the conversations taking place on Earth right now. This completes the machine. The machine that Marconi dreamt of using to play back the sounds of the past. However, this dream was a nightmare for industries built on the confined rationing of sound. Because the thing about sound is, as fleeting and ethereal as it is, once it began reverberating, it couldn't be stopped. July 20th, 1999. Chuck D was never one to shy away from saying difficult things. As the front man for the hip-hop group Public Enemy, his uncompromising lyrics and rich sampled soundscapes helped popularize socially conscious rap. So it was with his characteristic unflinching boldness that he stood before the music business at an industry conference and sang the praises of the coming digital revolution. A revolution that the panicked record industry was desperately and hopelessly fighting against. Chuck D was doing more than just singing the praises of the revolution. He was helping to lead it. Because you see, that July 20th was also the day that Public Enemy released its new album, There's a Poison Going On. Or at least that was the day that the album came out in stores. A month earlier, they had actually released the album on the internet. One of the first times ever that a major artist would use the new medium to release their music. It is perhaps not surprising that hip-hop artists would be some of the first to break ranks with the traditional record labels. After all, the greed of the industry had already left its mark on the genre. Hip-hop had formed around the act of sampling sounds from other artists. Sounds that were normally copyrighted. This went largely ignored while hip-hop was an underground movement. But as the genre gained in popularity and there was real money to be made, the record labels began to take notice and crack down on the stolen sounds. This made the rich sonic textures of Public Enemy's first albums no longer practical. So yeah, Chuck D wholeheartedly embraced the coming revolution. Sound reverberated on, growing ever louder. And when the record industry's worst fears were realized, 
and the song sharing service Napster. Chuck D defended the internet company in front of Congress. He chastised the music industry that made millions off of artists such as himself, while often giving back little in return. He called the ability to download songs from the internet the radio of the new millennium. The record labels won the battle against Napster, but they lost the war over sound sharing. And sound reverberates on and on and on. And Sound can still be fragile and fleeting. Guillermo Marconi died on July 20th, 1937. After a series of heart attacks, the man that dreamt of overcoming the silencing reality of time felt his own heart grow silent. And our story ends the same way it began, with silence. But this time, only two minutes of radio silence. Two minutes of silence that much of the world observed. To honor the man that filled the sky with sound and electricity. Silence to remember the man who dreamt of sound that would never end. Waves that would reverberate forever. Reverberations that would truly connect us for the first time, bringing the sounds of exciting, unknown places into our lives. Reverberations that I caught by chance one summer afternoon with my idle turning of a radio dial. Reverberations that would change my life forever. Reverberations that brought you that song you needed that one time, right when you needed it. The song that still brings tears to your eyes when you hear it. Reverberations that right now penetrate the walls of the room you're in. Penetrate your very body. Endless reverberations. I'll let you decide if Guillermo Marconi was able to defeat time in the end. It wasn't as crazy as it might seem.